for the last, what, two, three years that this Bible study has been going, I filled in a couple different times. And every time Dad asked me to, to share, I always try to pray about what topic I need to talk about. And for whatever reason, this one has always been kind of on my heart, but I always kind of put it on the back burner. Thankfully, the Lord always kind of provides me with another topic. And this time, same thing. Like, Dad asked me to speak, and I was like, oh, I should probably talk about this, but I'm going to find something else. And the Lord continued to just kind of place this on my heart and felt like this was the right time to discuss it. Um, and the reason I think it's pretty clear why I didn't want to talk about this, because first off, I feel like it should be something that's addressed by the leader of the group, and I'm definitely not that. I also feel like it's a very divisive topic and not something that I wanted to try and, you know, come out here and act like I know what I'm doing and throw gas on the flame. And at the same time, I also uh, don't want to try to like squeeze this into one like concise message because I feel like you could do an entire series on this and I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. However, through this kind of process, I realized those are all just kind of excuses that I gave myself to not have to talk about it. And the Lord put it on my heart because I think it is a very important topic that we need to discuss as a body of believers. So I say that to let you know that I'm not here today to try and change your mind, uh, depending on what side of the aisle you believe. That's not my, my hope here tonight is to come and say, you know what, you're wrong or you're right. Um, I'm hoping that I'm just going to be able to strengthen your thinking one way or the other so that you can justify or maybe clarify the verses that are on both sides of this because you, in, in any good debate, there are evidence for both sides. And so I hope that through this, you're able to strengthen your thinking on um, either end. And I'm not here to issue a verdict. Again, I'm not going to be the one to, at the end of this, say, this is what you need to believe. I have a very strong belief in this because of the Bible. And so I hope um, by the end that I'm able to portray that to you. But my main goal here is just to lay out biblical truth. And that's what I kept coming back to is that these aren't my words. This isn't something that I'm trying to propose this doctrine or anti-doctrine to you. I'm just here to lay out biblical truth. And so we're going to just go through a lot of different Bible verses, discuss the interpretation of each of them. And before we do that, I think it's important to start on biblical truths because one of the things that makes this topic so interesting is that two Christians who are both Bible-believing, chasing after the Lord with their whole, their whole heart, can read the exact same verse and take the interpretation a completely different way than what I do, which to me is actually evidence of free will. So if you're a Calvinist and think you don't have free will, this right here, like this very concept of us being able to read the same thing and come up with different interpretations is almost evidence that that can't be the case. We have free will to choose what we want to do. We also have the ability to misunderstand the text. And so that's why I think it's important for all of us to come at any topic with humility and knowing that we don't have any egos in this, but that we're constantly pursuing the truth in the Bible and that we have to be open to the idea that we're wrong and allowing the Bible to shape our perception of this. So do not be arrogant in anything you believe except for the Word of God. So as we set these parameters around this discussion, I want to specifically set out these biblical truths, the first being that the Bible cannot contradict itself. So if you take one verse and you interpret it that way, that's fine. But then you have to make all the other verses fit with that because the truth is that the Bible cannot contradict itself. 
1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So it works in you. It's a living, breathing document. That's what makes this so vital to our salvation. John 10.35, If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Psalm 12.6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So as long as we all agree on this, we can move forward. Everyone in agreement? The Bible cannot be contradicted. Truth number two is that God on his own cannot take away salvation. Okay, We all understand this idea that once the Lord gave you that gift, God is not going to himself take that away from you. John 10, 28, And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Hebrews 13, 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, so this is a truth that I think moving forward, we need to, we need to all agree on this that God's love and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, you may instantly say, whoa, hold on, isn't, that, isn't this exactly what uh, once saved, always saved is all about? We'll, we'll get to that. The big topic of, of conversation, or maybe why this is a big topic, is because of conflation. Now, uh, Logan, wherever he's at, Right there, shared a, a message from Dr. Leighton Flowers in no, November that was really good that um, he kind of basically did a, a um, response video to a Calvinist talking about some of the ideas of Calvinism. And he brought up a really good point that I think will change your perspective on this. And that is when you think about persuasion as salvation, you run into a conflation issue where they're not actually tied together, they're two separate things. So when we look at the prodigal son, we know that the son was 100% responsible for his sin and 100% responsible for leaving the father and going off and sinning. But he was also 100% responsible for coming back and, and repenting and asking for forgiveness. On the other side of that, you also have the father who was 100% responsible and in control of offering the grace to his son. So the son could have come to the father with 100% of his responsibility saying, I was in the wrong, and the father could have said, I'm sorry. And so this idea, it's super tiny up there, but this idea that Calvinists and Reformed theology has is that they look at it that we're saying God has 99% of our salvation. He's responsible for 99% of it, and we're responsible for 1%. And they say, no, 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 that's not how it is. God's responsible for 100% of it, and man has 0% to do with it. And I'm saying, that's not the case whatsoever. It's two separate pies. We each have a role to play in this. It is 100% on God to offer grace and salvation to us. I have no cause in that. I can't cause God to do anything. But I can be 100% responsible for my own actions in accepting that grace and doing what it takes to be saved. And I, I mentioned Calvinism a lot. There's actually a lot more than just Calvinists um, or Reformed. There's, there's a lot of different 
theologies that revolve around this. Calvinism is just kind of the big one because it seems to be the most popular. Uh, and so in Calvinism, if you're familiar with TULIP, these are the five points of Calvinism. The P is the perseverance of the saints. This is kind of where this idea comes from. It's also called once saved, always saved, or eternal security. Um, I've heard it called a false sense of security, and that's what I, I really like that because that is really what it is all about. No one wants to feel insecure. You know, we, we all want to feel like we're secure in our faith, and we don't want to feel like there's a chance we could lose it. That's okay. We need to set that aside and look at what the Bible says because our feelings shouldn't make any difference in that. Uh, some of the people that believe this way are continental reformed, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Reformed Anglicans, and Reformed Baptists. So, again, not just Calvinism. Uh, there's a lot of different religions that believe this. So, why is this so important? Is this a salvific issue? Does this matter at the end of the day if once saved, always saved is true or not? Well, here's why I believe it's important. First, this belief removes the fear of God. And as Logan said in his message a few weeks ago, the fear of God is one of the most important things we can have. And when you take that away, you're opening yourself up to a lot of deceit and a lot of ego. Two, it creates a false sense of security. Three, it kills the pain of holy sorrow, which leads to repentance. And at the end of the day, we need to be teaching truth. So if this is something that is true, I believe we should be teaching it. But if it's not true, then it's even more important that we should be teaching against it because it's kind of a big deal if you can lose your faith. And you're telling someone that they can't lose their faith and they go on sinning and you don't tell them that it's possible for them to lose it. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. We need to be defending one another in the faith. And that's what I felt so strongly about sharing this. When it's accepted as truth, it can be quite dangerous because this theology says that grace is a free gift and in this gift we can do nothing to earn it or deserve it which is true but then we don't do anything about it we're not trying to earn our salvation i want to be very clear about that i'm not in any way saying again we earn it but there is an action on our part that we need to have a response to god faith without works is dead um, Finally, if it's wrong, we need to be looking out for others. I mentioned that before. I love this quote from Daniel Joseph. He said, This theology dictates how believers process and rationalize spiritual issues. While the idea is comforting, it doesn't matter how I feel. It's a fabrication and a perversion of what the Bible professes. And this perversion is wreaking havoc on the church. It's happening because Satan has gone out to kill the pain of holy sorrow, which leads us to repentance. Instead of loathing sin, it takes a lethargic approach. So I hope this kind of sets the stage for why this is actually a big deal and not just something we can kind of maybe have a little disagreement with. If you end up after this choosing that you still feel like eternal security is the way that you go, that's totally fine. I'm not, I'm not mad at you or saying that you're going to hell by any means, but I want you to have an understanding of what this means to other believers as you tell them this. Because I do know some awesome, awesome godly men and women that believe this theology and I in no way think that they're going to hell or that they're stupid. I just have a disagreement and I want them to understand the significance of how they believe and how this can be portrayed to new believers. So looking at some examples of this, now these are extreme. I'm not saying that everybody that believes in this thinks this way, but I want to, sh to highlight the danger of this idea. Uh, Sam Morris is a Baptist preacher 
He says in a, a tract he wrote called Do Christians' Sins Damn His Soul? He wrote, We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatsoever to do with the salvation of his soul. That is settled in Christ and Christ alone. So to me, this is an example of that conflation because he's saying, I mean, I can, whatever I, yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever I do is fine. Like the, the grace was covered in Christ alone. He did it all. So I can kind of keep on sinning. And as long as I'm a believer, it's fine. Bill Foster, another Baptist preacher. If I killed my wife and mother and debauched a thousand women, I couldn't go to hell. In fact, I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. This is a very blatant and abrasive, but you can't blame him because this is the logical conclusion of this doctrine. Because once you're saved and you're to that point and there's no way you can lose it, he's right. You could go on doing whatever you want. And I don't know how someone that believes in one saved, always saved, can argue against what he says. He's right within that line of thinking. So first, let's look at some of the verses that kind of identify and create this doctrine, where this comes from. John 10, 28, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, 38, 39, For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So both these verses, again, talking about God and the fact that nobody is ever going to be able to snatch you out of your hand, which I believe 100%. How can I disagree? It's in the Bible. What this isn't talking about is man. Nowhere does it say man can walk out of his hand. It just says nobody's going to be able to take them out of his hand. Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Kind of interesting because right there we're, we're seeing something, a, a warning. Take heed. Why would you need to take heed if uh, there's a possibility that, or if there's not a possibility that you would fall? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, I will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. They point to this as, a, as an idea that you're never going to be tempted to a point where you can't lose your salvation. But I read this, the way I translate it, as God is always going to provide you with a way out. You always have a choice to make. And that is what we're going to be discussing is that choice. The two paths that you're walking out. God is always going to give you a way out. But... It doesn't say here that God is going to force you to be on that path. Otherwise, what's the point of temptation in the first place? Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I highlighted that guarantee. That's going to be important later. Just uh, remember that. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So these two verses, kind of saying the exact same thing, but people look at this and say, you're sealed. 
So you're good. Nobody's going to break that seal. Once you're sealed, you're set. So before we move on, I want everyone to, in their own minds, think, do you believe that if you are, if you have the Holy Spirit, that you are sealed of God? Is the Holy Spirit a sign of your salvation? Yes or no? I don't need an answer, but you need to think about that. This is something you need to recognize before we go on, because that is going to be a topic of discussion. So let's get into some of the verses that go against this idea of eternal security. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, the first time I read this verse, I was thinking, I got it. This is it. This is a silver bullet right here. Like anytime I meet somebody that has this idea, I'm going to send them this verse and they're, they're not going to have any response. Turns out there's a lot of different responses to this. There's a lot of ways you can take it. I don't know how you can read enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and say that that person's not saved. I don't know how you can say that, but that is the, the excuse, is that that person was never saved. They were just, they kind of touched their foot in the water. They got their toe in the water. And that's where this, where all this comes back to for anybody that believes in this doctrine is that you can get to the point, you can kind of be a part of it, but they were never truly saved. They never actually got where they were sealed with that promise. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Did you know that? Did you know that there's a point where the sacrifice that God made no longer applies? That's a super, super scary thought. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? If we are sinning willfully after accepting Yeshua, you're blotted out of his book because there's no longer that sacrifice of sins. So I feel like the church today has kind of a backwards view of this where we look at now that Christ has come, his grace covers everything, we're good, where the opposite has actually taken place. Now that Jesus came and died for your sins, it's a bigger responsibility for us. We know that he covered everything. So we actually have to take this more seriously than we did before he even came the first time. 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22 for if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true, true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So defenders of this doctrine will say that they only knew the way of righteousness. They weren't righteous. They just, they like had an understanding of it. They didn't believe it. But again, my question is, where do you then draw this line? 
Because we have evidence of people partaking in the Holy Spirit. We have examples of people turning away from Christ. So if you're turning from something, it means you're at one point on the road to Christ. So my question is, how far do you have to get down that road before you say, you did it, you passed the marker, now you're done? Now you're sealed. At what point are you saved? I don't know what the answer is to those that say that you can get to a point here on this earth where you're sealed and then you're done. I view it as something that you have to continually do each and every day where we accept that grace of salvation from God and each and every day should live our lives in repentance, thanking God for that grace that he gave us. So I can't, I'm not going to lose it on God's accord, but I can lose it if I choose to continue living in sin, if I choose to return to my own vomit, if I go after being washed to go wallow in the mire. Revelations 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. So note, this is written to the Christians. Okay, this isn't written to non-believers. This is people in the church. These things, says he who was the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Okay, so works don't save you, but works are evidence of your faith. We know this. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. This is a warning to the believers to hold fast and repent, to turn around. He's warning them right now. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So, does he warn them because they can't be lost, or does he warn them because they can? This book of life, to me, is, again, really solid evidence, something that I don't I don't know what the defense is. I'd be curious to have this discussion. Um, because in Exodus 32, 31 through 33, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, this is after the, the golden calf incident, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So how can one be blotted out of a book that they were never inscribed in? The conclusion here is that people can be written in the book of life and then blotted out. Is the default when we enter this world that you're in the book of life or that we were born into iniquity and sin? What's the default when you're born? Okay, so at some point we chose grace and forgiveness and we're written into the book of life. And at some point God says, if you sin against me, I will blot out your name out of the book of life. Let's look at David. Psalm 59, 10 through 11. Now, David is a man after God's own heart, right? It says that in the Bible. So a person that we should probably emulate and take what he says and try to copy what he does. And what does David do when he sins? says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, 
and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Did David just sit back and expect God's grace to just take care of it? He knew the gravity of the situation of his sin. He understood the fear of the Lord, knowing what was at stake, that the Holy Spirit of the Lord could be taken from him. Well, he watched, he watched Saul, uh, Saul after the Spirit left him. Yeah. Yep. He knew the gravity of the situation. And even if you believe that you can't lose your salvation. My fact checker says that Psalm 51. Psalm 51? Okay. Psalm 51, 10 through 11. Thank you for, appreciate that. Even if you believe that you have that eternal salvation, you should still hate and loathe your sin and beg the Lord for, for forgiveness, knowing with full surety that the Lord is going to offer it to you every single time. Psalm 103, 17 through 18. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. There's a pattern here of what the Lord has to offer, his promise, and then some of the requirements from us in order to receive this blessing to such as keep his commandment and those who remember his commandments to do them. It doesn't say for everybody, whether I call you and you, you have no choice in the matter, his mercy is everlasting to whoever wants to answer that call, but there has to be a response from us as well. There's always an if-then, and I've done this. If you go back and, and look at the verses that I've already done, you've seen this multiple times. This if-then structures all throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 14, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse... If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Two paths are clearly laid out. There's no, black, or there's no gray area here. It's, it's very black and white. The Lord is, is not one for confusion. He tells you, here are your options, blessings and a curse, life and death. It's your choice to choose which path you want to choose. The markers for this path are very clear, clearly laid out. So you can't Claim ignorance, like, oh, I didn't know. He tells you what you need to do. Psalm 36, 1 through 3. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So we know right here, this is what leads to sin. No fear of God. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Isn't it interesting how a verse can completely change with one word, such as ceased to be wise and do good? That means at one point, this oracle, this wicked man, was once wise. And we know that wisdom is Jesus. Okay? So from here, we see that that wicked or that good person ceased to do what was right and to do good. Galatians 5.4, 
You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I could have done an entire word study. This again, if I had a couple weeks to do something, we would have looked at each word of salvation because that's one of the arguments that I hear all the time is, well, they, it didn't specifically say that person was saved and then they lost their salvation. And so there's a lot of technicalities on words. So I want to, I'm only going to do two of these, but look at the word estranged from Christ. And ironically, this is one that's talking about those who wanted to be justified by the law. And I think there's many people that would think about this group and say, that's exactly what y'all are doing, trying to be justified by the law. That's not what we're doing here. We all know that. Okay, we're not being justified by the law. We do it because we love him. So this word estranged um, is cartago, and it literally means to be severed from Christ. Okay, this isn't just they, they're in the pool of salvation and they're kind of on the shallow end of the pool, like they, they kind of fell away from grace. This means you're cut off. Okay, discharged, severed, separated from. This is one of the greatest examples you can find um, for the fact that you can lose your salvation. Ezekiel 18, 24 through 28. But when a righteous man, I'm sorry, at this point, I don't know how you can argue that this man is not saved. A righteous man. If, if that's not a saved man, we've got deeper problems to discuss. Turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. Sounds like you can murder your wife and go about debauchery and probably still go to, to hell. I think that's the case clearly laid out here in Ezekiel. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O Israel, it is not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. This isn't, the Lord even says, this isn't my fault, okay? I'm always going to uphold my end of the bargain here. But when a righteous man continues to sin and live in iniquity, what am I supposed to do? So let's look at some biblical examples of this. We've talked about the concept, but let's, let's put this into uh, practical examples here. You mentioned Saul. You must have been reading my notes ahead of time. Uh, Saul was called by God. Okay, we go back to that. Um, oh, what's, what's the two? The I. Irresistible grace. This idea that God calls only a select few, and if you are called by him, you have no choice but to accept it. Okay? Let's, let's go with that for a second. If that is true, then Saul, you can't deny, is not saved because he's called by God. Right here, it says in 1 Samuel 10.1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over all of his inheritance? Skipping forward a few verses. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him, meaning Saul, another heart 
So he a clean heart, a new heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. Saul was not only anointed by God to be the king of Israel, Saul was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then Saul became a prophet of God. Does that happen to anybody else here? <laughs> so if you want to look at this and tell me that Saul was, he really wasn't ever like truly saved. Like that scares me because I was never to this point. I was never this far down <laughs> as where Saul was. But unfortunately, this is not the case leading into his life. He did not stay true to the course. 1 Samuel 15, 23. After Saul disobeyed, he was impatient. He sacrificed the animals himself, said, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Okay, so that's the first step. You can say, well, he didn't take his salvation. He's just no longer king. Fast forward a little bit more to 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. A distressing spirit troubled Saul, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. We know this is the case. Uh, Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 backs this up. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 15. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Talking about David. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Why did the Spirit of the Lord depart from Saul? Because God chose to take out his hand? No. The Lord says, my hand is not shortened. I have it always extended for you. But Saul did not follow the commandments of the Lord. And so his spirit was, the spirit of the Lord was removed because of Saul's iniquity. That's no small deal. Second Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So this spirit that was removed from Saul, when I asked you earlier, is the Holy Spirit a sign and a seal of your salvation? I asked you to make a choice. Is that a yes or a no? Because you have to justify that. Whichever way you go, you have to justify that with this verse that the Spirit is a guarantee and proof of our inheritance. It is our seal. In my mind, without a doubt, Scripture proves if you have the Holy Spirit, you have a proof of inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So that guarantee should mean once you have it, you're good, right? Like that's a sealed guarantee. You're sealed, you're good. Well, this word guarantee, which I highlighted earlier, is Arabon, 
which actually is an earnest. It's a part payment in advance for security, meaning it's given in advance as a security that the whole will be paid afterwards. This is everything we're discussing is a covenant, right? This is just like a contract. Think about this as like earnest money in a bilateral agreement. And this agreement we have from the very beginning. Going back to Deuteronomy 30, uh, 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments. Okay, so this is a, a contract. God is laying out exactly what our side of the bargain is. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So there's the Lord's promise. Okay, here's what I'll do for you. This is what you do. Here's what I will do. Uh, but did I skip a verse? Okay. But if, your, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. So just like any good contract, there's a breach of contract terms that are written in very careful verbiage. The Lord does the exact same here. Here's your promise. Here's my promise. But if you do this, I'm going to have to do this. That's a promise. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over to the Jordan to go in and possess. <laughs> Look at this. There's even witnesses, right? That's how contracts work. There's a witness. Two witnesses. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That's not God telling you that I'm saving you and you have no choice in the matter. God says, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him, cling to the Lord your God with all your heart. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Okay, continuing in some of these examples, uh, angels in heaven. Again, something I've never been. Um, surrounded by his presence constantly, predestined to do his bidding. That is what they were designed for from the very beginning was to worship the Lord and do his bidding. Yet we see that in Revelation, even the angels fall. Second Peter 2, 4 through 9, or 4, and we're going to skip forward to 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... Skipping forward to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Revelations 12, 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. We're not going to get into a discussion on whether or not angels have souls and whether or not they're saved, but it's very clear that obviously angels were in heaven in the presence of God. And then we're cast out. Adam and Eve, they were perfect, right? No sin. Are you telling me that from the beginning, Adam and Eve weren't saved? And the Lord God commanded them saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why give them a choice, right? What's the whole purpose of setting this up? If not to give them an option for life and death, blessings and cursing, and a chance to go down the wrong path because the Lord wants to find out how much you love him. Solomon, 
This is when God spoke to Solomon in 1 Kings 9, 4 through 7. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgment, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if, here's the breach of contract terms, if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Again, casting out of his sight. Is this God saying, I'm going to have to kind of distance myself from you a little bit? Like if you do that, I don't. No, no, no. You're cast out of my sight. I, I, I can't even see you because you're choosing to worship other gods. I have to cut you off. This is actually the second time that God spoke to Solomon. Let's go back and read in 1 Kings 3. We'll see the exact same setup. You can go read the whole chapter. This is the first time that God came and spoke to him. And he tells him in 1 Kings 3 verse 14, So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon had everything, long life, the promise of wisdom, the most wise man ever walked the face of the earth, probably the richest man ever walked the face of the earth, lacking nothing. And what happened when he had everything? He got complacent. He did not fear the Lord, and it cost him everything. 1 Kings 11, 4 through 8. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abominations of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemesh, the abomination of Moab, and on the hill that is the east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So what keeps us from sinning is not this idea of eternal security that once you said a prayer, you're good and that now your heart is in a good place and you just won't sin because now you're, you love God and he wouldn't have saved you if he didn't know that you were just saved and you're going to continue being a good person. The reason we shouldn't sin is because we fear God. So I'm going to call this Logan's Sermon Part 2 because I loved everything he said a few weeks back. Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why, why is there a test 
of our salvation. Well, first off, why would there be a test if you were saved anyway? Or if you're saved and you can't lose your salvation. It's because God is wanting us to fear him. Right here, God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. That would be the discussion I would then start with. Because if you can't, if you can't use the Old Testament as your weapon, then, and that's not something they're even willing to accept, then your problem, then discussion shouldn't be about once saved, always saved. It should be about that first. Because you don't have a leg to stand on if you can't stand on the Old Testament. Yes, exactly. So the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thickness where God was. So the voice of God should strike fear into our very hearts and lead us to repentance. And if you take away that fear, which is what one saved always saved does, it takes away the fear of God because you're now on his side. You've been sealed. You're accepted. Why would you ever need to fear him? Well, now you don't have a need or a reason to feel that repentance and that holy sorrow. First Peter 1.7. Here's some New Testament verses for you. <laughs> and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. It's kind of interesting. We're judged by our works there, huh? Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Not just until you say that prayer. The entire time that you're here on earth, conducted in fear. If you have nothing to worry about, why is he instructing these believers to live in fear if they can't fall away? Because Peter knew that judgment was coming. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I thought God did everything, didn't he? I thought everything was taken care of when he said, I died on the cross for you, and that my blood covers all, that we don't have to do anything, Right? So why do we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Because it's not God doing everything for us. We have to act. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Oh, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 1 Corinthians 9:24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. When's the race done? Where is that line of salvation? Because the way I see it, when we look at the history of the world, look at the wrath of God with Noah. Almost 2 billion people, or whatever the estimate is, were on earth. And how many people came off that boat? Eight. There was 600,000 men numbered when they came out of Egypt. How many made it to the promised land? Two. We've become so complacent that the gates of heaven are so wide and that once we say a prayer, we're, just, we're all on that path. We're walking straight into the gates of heaven. And you're good. I don't see that to be the case. So to try and not end on such a somber note, here's the good news. God loves you. Here's the flowers. 
First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as long as everyone in this building and everyone that hears the sound of my voice believes this and does this, everything I just said is a moot point. Okay? Don't turn from the Lord. Do this and you're just fine. Have that godly fear. But we don't have to worry about waking up each and every day. Oh my gosh, am I not saved today? Do this and you're fine. Okay, it's very clear. It's very obvious. It's, it's not hard. It's just something we have to choose to do each and every day. Deuteronomy 31.8 And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. If you, have, or if you are saved today, you have the inheritance of God. You're good. Luke 9.23, then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross just once and follow me. <laughs> Daily, we need to be picking up our cross. Joshua 24.15, this is my call to each and every one of you today. No matter what you decide after hearing all these Bible verses, I hope you decide this. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. With that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace that is abounding, that is never ending, that you have called us, that you've given us a way out from the sin that rules this world, Lord. Just all the evil that is constantly surrounding us. We thank you for putting us here on this earth for the opportunity to bring others to you. That if we were truly saved, that you would want us up there right now. But the reason we are here struggling through this life is to bring others to you because you love them so much that you died on the cross. I pray that each and every person here would leave these doors with a weight on their shoulders, not only of their own sin and a desire to repent, but a weight for the souls in this earth that do not know you, that have not come to you, that are on the wrong path, Lord, that we would help turn them through your grace, through your word, Lord, that we would plant the seed and that you would water it, that you would go before us and tell us where to plant seeds. I ask that your Holy Spirit would go out before us and with us and lead and guide us that we would have the words to speak when they need spoke and that we would not speak when we don't need to speak. Just be with our, our actions, Lord, and our works. Be with the children this evening, just that they would be blessed. Be with the men in this building, that they would lead, this, their, lead their family with honor and dignity, that you would be with the women of the house, that they would lead their house and care for everyone and serve others as Christ cared for the church. And just give everyone a special blessing here this evening. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your beautiful name. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.